in this series called Some Good News because Jesus summarized his entire mission on earth with this ancient word that used to be translated the gospel. You'll hear churchy people say that, the gospel, but it literally means good news. And in week one, we kind of pulled the word apart to look at the the two words that are smushed together there, and it literally means the life good messenger, news, the life messenger. Jesus brings a message of life wherever you're encountering death. At the end of our time on earth, when we breathe our final breath, he brings a message of life. It's freely available to all. When you're going through the death of a relationship or the death of a dream uh, or the death of a season of life, he always brings a life message. Well, we've been starting each week of this series with a literal good news story from our world, and uh, this is a great one. Julia Tinetti and Cassandra Madison met in 2013 as co-workers. They were both working at the same bar in Connecticut called the Russian Lady Bar, and they hit it off right away. In fact, so many of their co-workers and customers would say, you look like sisters. And they found out that they had both been adopted when they were babies from the Dominican Republic. And they compared their baby photos, and they're like, oh my goodness, we even look like sisters. But they tried to track it down, and they couldn't find any official paperwork. And so they just kept being kind of best pals and best friends. Well, uh, over the summer here, Julia was able to get a DNA test. And the DNA test linked her to her biological dad in the Dominican Republic. So she went, she met him. And then uh, she gave Cassandra the same DNA test, and they found out that they are, in fact, biological sisters who met in the workplace. Isn't that crazy? That's some good news right there. Here's another piece of good news. This one sounds like bad news at first, but there was a sinkhole in Florida, and this started underneath uh, someone's boat. They had their boat parked on a trailer in their yard, and they noticed that the earth was opening up. Sinkholes are somewhat common in Florida. So they contacted the authorities, and um, this one looks like bad news at first because two houses get swallowed up by the earth. Uh, But the good news is they got everybody out in time. So I want to show you guys this video because the nerd in me, I just, when I saw this video, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this happened to someone's house, but everyone's okay. They got the dogs out. They even got the medication out. They got all their essential items out. Look at these two houses, though, getting swallowed up by the earth. I know that's wild. I want you to think what it must have been like for the people in those homes when they got a knock at their door. If you can just imagine getting a knock on your front door and you go out to the front door and it's a sheriff's deputy and he's like, "Um, bad news, your house is about to fall into the earth. Good news, we got here just in time and we can get you out. Uh, That would be such a wild thing. It actually happened. And here's the reality. Sometimes life-saving good news 
feels like bad news because it's not what we want to hear, right? That was ultimately good news for those people, bad news for their house, but good news for them that they were pulled out just in the nick of time. And it's the same with Jesus' good news in the Bible. There are areas of our lives where we've got strained relationships or even our finances, areas that are immediate, that as soon as we start to do what Jesus says, um, we see an immediate improvement. And it's like, wow, that's great news. There are other areas of our lives where he knocks on the door, so to speak, and he says, hey, you might not realize it, but you're building your life over a sinkhole. And we say, well, that's not good news. He says, but there is good news. Come with me. I'm going to rescue you, and then I'm going to rebuild you on solid ground. I'll give you an example of this. My son, Jack, he's 11, and I recently wanted to get him reading our Life Application Study Bible, so I took a very spiritual approach to this uh, called bribery. I literally pay him money to read the Bible, and I have no shame in my game about that. I think it's one of the best investments I will ever make. Uh, by the way, so let me explain how it works, and then I kid you not, if you're really serious about this, I will pay you to read the Bible as well, okay? I'll see how many people take me up on this. So this is the Life Application Study Bible that we give away at our Connection Corner. You can pick one up today. This is Jack's journal. Now, there's a book of the Bible called Proverbs. Proverbs is awesome because uh, no matter where you are spiritually, it will help you in your work, in school, in life, because it's wisdom about life. And so every day uh, of the month, there's 31 chapters of Proverbs, and there's usually 30 or 31 days in a month. So Jack just goes to Proverbs, and he looks up the date, and then in his journal, he'll write just one verse out of the proverb that sticks out to him. And then he'll do one very short prayer, God, help me to not be lazy, or help me to be honest, Uh, help me to have wisdom. It's usually those kind of things in Proverbs. Well, the other day, he came to me, and he said, uh, oh, and by the way, then I pay him once a month, so... No shame in that game, truly. And uh, if you want to take me up on that, let me know, okay? It's not a lot of money, but it's a good investment. Okay, here's the verse that he said, Dad, what does this one mean? Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. He said, Dad, what in the world does that mean? So I I talked about the sinkhole with him. I said, you know, when that sheriff's deputy knocked on the door, it didn't seem like a good thing. In fact, it was a little bit wounding. It was uncomfortable, like what, my house might collapse? But that sheriff's deputy was being a friend. He was helping. On the other hand, if someone knew, oh, your house is about to collapse into the earth, but I don't want to knock on your door. You might not like me if I'm the bearer of bad news. That's like an enemy multiplying kisses. Or Jack, here's another way to think of it. If you're driving a car and you're about to go off of a cliff, A friend will do whatever it takes to stop you. Even if it hurts your feelings, even if you don't like them for a little bit, they're going to do whatever it takes to stop you. An enemy is just going to wave and smile as you drive off the cliff. And we talked about, you know, what will this look like in your life in the next few years? Well, as you go through high school, you're going to have friends who start going to parties where there's underage drinking and getting intoxicated. And if you're a good friend to them, you're going to say, that's dangerous. That's not good for you. If you're an enemy, you're going to say, ah, do whatever you want because I don't want to hurt your feelings. Now, the point is this. All throughout Scripture, God tells us things that are good for us, and sometimes it feels good, and other times it feels uncomfortable, but it's always for our good. Here's just one other way to think of this. I want you to imagine a medical doctor 
who uh, learns early in his career that when he has to tell people that they're dying, it's very depressing conversation. And so he takes this approach that he's just going to always tell everyone everything's okay. So even if he gets your medical report and it says that you need a life-saving surgery, he takes the approach of telling you, you know what, good news, everything's okay. That would not only be bad, that would be outright evil. And Jesus, in his good news, sometimes gives us good news that we're like, oh yeah, I needed that. And other times gives us good news that we're like, oh, that is uncomfortable. But here's the question I want to ask you today. If you were in danger and you didn't know it, would you want to know? If you were in danger and and you didn't know it, would you want someone to tell you? If right now there was a sinkhole under your house, would you want someone to tell you? Or better yet, more accurately, what if there's a sinkhole under our entire lives, under our entire world, would you want someone to tell you the path to rescue? Well, that's where Jesus is going to take us today as we study this word gospel or good news, we come to good news for the end of the world. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about the apocalypse today. Literally, we are. We're talking about the end of the world. And so if you're a guest with us and this is your very first time here, I want you to know we do not talk about the apocalypse or the end of the world like every single weekend here, okay? This is a little different for us. And so if you are a guest, please, please make sure you come back next week uh, because next week is a series that is right where you're living. This is about our future But this is, as we do a true word study of this word, the next occurrence of it in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to talk about the end times. And here's how it starts in Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, so that was a physical temple there in Jerusalem. And by the way, it's one of the ancient wonders of the world, or it was. It was a marvel. It was a huge, beautiful building. And it was actually built by a ruler named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is well-documented in ancient history as a great architect. He loved building these massive structures. And in fact, in some of his structures, they would have these stone bricks that were carved, probably by slaves, that would be 45 feet long. So if you picture an entire semi-trailer made of solid stone, perfectly carved with perfectly smooth edges, 90-degree corners... That's what the disciples are referring to here when they say, look, teacher, what massive bricks or what massive stones in this huge building. What a magnificent building in this complex of buildings. Here's an artist's rendering because we have all the measurements of that temple of what it would have looked like. And this gold in that uh, Middle Eastern sun, it would shine and people would from miles away be able to see the sun reflecting off the gold. It was pure gold, real gold all throughout the roof and in a lot of the trim. And then Jesus says in verse two, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now to the disciples, this seems impossible physically And it seems preposterous, like they grew up going to this temple. Herod the Great has been working on it for decades. He's going to keep working on it after Jesus' death and resurrection. And this just blows the disciples' minds. Like how could one of these 45-foot-tall stones be pushed off of the other stones? Well, 
as is often the case with Jesus' predictions, this came true. And 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, again, secular historians document that a new ruler named Titus had taken over, and he kind of got fed up with the Jewish people, and he sent a Roman army into Jerusalem, and many of the people went to hide out inside the temple. And Titus had told the Roman soldiers, don't destroy the temple, it's an architectural wonder. But the soldiers were, you know, kind of uh, soldiers, they were like getting drunk, and they were... You know, at this time, the way soldiers were uh, not your most civilized people. They would loot and pillage, and some of them are drunk, and they're firing flaming arrows into the temple just to sort of terrorize the people that are in there. Well, some of the tapestries in the temple catch on fire. There's all these textiles and flammable things in there. The whole temple ends up going up in flames. And as it does, that gold trim and the gold on the roof starts to melt down and get in places in the cracks between the bricks. This is all recorded not in the Bible, but by Josephus, who is a non-Christian historian who is Jewish, who writes a lot about Jesus and the early church and Jerusalem. So as Josephus and other ancient historians record it, then once all the people inside died, the Roman soldiers went back and they start to pry the gold out. They want to get every ounce of that gold. And because the gold has melted between the bricks, the only way they can get it is to literally push the bricks off. And 40 years after Jesus predicted it, that temple was literally turned over brick by brick. If you go to Israel today, you can find areas where archaeologists have dug down about 30 feet through the earth and they have found... These huge bricks, this is one of those bricks. So the Roman soldiers then um, were tasked to reuse those bricks as part of what was an ancient Roman road. And the point is this, for the disciples, that prediction seemed preposterous. It seemed impossible. And then it literally happened within 40 years. And I believe God put that in this chapter of the Bible because the next predictions that Jesus gives seem equally as preposterous or impossible to us. And here's how the story continues. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So they were in Jerusalem. They're talking about the temple. He says, it's all going to get destroyed. They go up on a mountain. They can look down, and they're still looking at the sun, reflecting off the gold. And so Peter, James, and John, who we've learned about the last couple of weeks, and their buddy Andrew's there with them, they ask Jesus privately, tell us, when will these things happen? I mean, you're saying the temple's going to be destroyed? That's like the end of the world. When is the end of the world? What will be the sign that all these things are going to be fulfilled? So Jesus says in verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So Jesus here, 2,000 years ago, when navies had wooden ships with sails and paddles, predicts a world war. A war that will touch every continent. And this is at a time his disciples, they don't even understand how impossible that is 2,000 years ago. Now here we are, about 100 years after the first ever in all of human history, true world war, World War I. And then about 35 years later, a second one, where uh, literally the entire globe 
was one kingdom against another kingdom. And Jesus says these are the beginnings of birth pains. In fact, Paul the Apostle later in the Bible will describe our planet, which has been corrupted by sin and broken and polluted, as longing for Jesus to return and make everything right, and that it's almost like it's going through birth pains. Now, Jesus, as he talks to the disciples, he's going to kind of zoom in on them. Here's what you're going to go through, James, John, and Peter. And then he's going to zoom out and talk about the whole world and the end of the world. And now he zooms in to those four guys that he's talking to. And he says in verse 9, you must be on guard. You, James, John, Peter, Andrew, you're going to be handed over to the local councils. You're going to be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel, that's our word that we've been studying, the life message, the good news, must first be preached to all the nations. And that word nations is where we get our word ethnicity. In other words, every race of humans God loves and Jesus died for, and he wants every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nationality, and every race to hear the good news. That God loves you, that he came to earth on a mission to rescue you, that he willingly suffered in your place so that you can have eternal life. And Jesus says, before the ultimate end times, I want this good news spread to the whole world. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, and if you were to ask the Pew Research Center, how many Christians are there in the world? It's a non-Christian group that does demographics and sociology. They say one out of three people in the world today claims to be a Christian. It has spread around the whole world. And then Jesus gives this warning in verse 22. False messiahs and false prophets will appear to perform signs and wonders. And they're going to deceive, Jesus says, if it were possible, even the elect. Who are the elect? Very simply, anyone who's placed your faith in Jesus. The elect is God's way of saying, you're part of my family I've chosen you and you've chosen me. We've mutually chosen each other. And he says, as the end times approach, there's going to be deceptive information. And we tend to think of this in a religious context, but really any message that says you don't need Jesus, you don't need God, you just decide whatever you want to believe is really an anti-Christ message or a false prophet message. It could come through Netflix. It could come through a cable news channel. It could come through anything, and those things aren't evil, but we need to be discerning what am I believing, what am I absorbing. So Jesus says in verse 23, be on guard. I've told you ahead of time that these things will happen. Verse 24, in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I always enjoy reading these books of the Bible that were written, in this case, 2,000 years ago, before the most advanced scientists of the world understood planetary motion or anything. And yet Jesus pretty much says, well, you know, if the sun's darkened, the moon will be too. Because he, he built it. He kind of knows how it works. And maybe you're thinking, like, could that actually happen? I mean, if the sun darkened, wouldn't we all die right away? Uh, here's just one example of the sun being darkened in Iceland in 2010. You might remember there was a huge volcanic eruption and the ash was over all of Europe, and they had to shut down air traffic in Europe for quite some time. And in a lot of places around Iceland, uh, if you looked up, you would just see these clouds. In fact, here's a lightning storm 
is another phenomenon of nature that you get these lightning storms in the volcanic ash clouds. Here's another picture of it. The point is, just one giant volcanic eruption, uh, the kind that geologists know have happened throughout history, could darken the sky uh, for as much as a year. In fact, in 1991, there was a volcanic eruption in the Philippines, and the volcanic ash, as it went up in the atmosphere, and a lot of the sun's rays would bounce off the volcanic ash, it cooled the earth by half a degree for all of 1991, uh, scientists have learned. Jesus continues, verse 25, he says, the stars will fall from the sky. I don't think, I don't think he means literally every single star is going to fall on planet earth, but this is a meteor shower, right? And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now that's the point where it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Now we've crossed from the natural to the supernatural. How could the heavenly bodies be shaken? And I'm going to suggest to you one of two ways, but God is God and he made it all so he could do it however he wants, okay? One way would be if the earth were to wobble a little bit on its axis, it would look like the whole universe was shaking. But here's another way, and I love this because this is very new science. Uh, for so long, we thought when we looked up at the universe and we saw all the black, it's like, okay, there's a star, everything else is nothing. But scientists, space astrophysicists, have learned in the last 10 years that the black is something, and they're calling it dark matter. It actually is something. We can't measure it like we can measure tangible things to us, but it is something. They're trying to figure out what it is. They've also learned ever since Einstein's theory of relativity that light bends. There's this thing called gravitational lensing. So the speed of light is not constant. It might be constant on planet Earth, but the speed of light, if it approaches a collapsed star, a black hole, light will slow down. It will go around it just like water in a current going around a rock, and then it'll speed back up on the other side. And so space astrophysicists, they're still trying to figure out what is this dark matter, and here's just what I want to posit to you. This is my little theory. God will do it however he wants, okay? If you imagine a bedspread, let's make it black like the night sky, navy blue if you want, okay? Bedspread, and you've got a bunch of Christmas ornaments on it. Those are like the stars and the planets that you can see. Now, if someone does this to the whole bedspread, what's going to happen? And the point is they're learning that all the darkness is something. And it has waves in it. And it has movement in it. Now, the point is this is going to be very quick at the end uh, where all of a sudden these calamities are happening. And then verse 26, here's the real purpose. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And I know some of you are listening, and you're like, okay, that's preposterous. That's impossible. And that's what the disciples thought about those 45-foot stones. And you can think that today, but God's telling you this, what seems like bad news, in a way that he wants you to know when that happens, that you're on his team. Because for those of us who know Christ, we're like, booyah, this is going to be awesome. Right? But if you don't know Jesus, what we're going to learn today is kind of terrifying. And so today is a day to make sure you know for sure that you're on his team, that you're in his family, that this literal day that will occur will be for you a day of rejoicing and not of terror. When God unzips the barrier between the unseen supernatural realm and the physical realm that we think of as home, what a moment it will be when every eye sees and every ear hears. Now, in God's sense of humor, 
I was studying this passage on September 8th. On September 8th, there was a really big earthquake in Mexico. And I'm going to show you a little footage of it. I'm not showing you this to say it's the end times panic, okay? That's not my point. My point is to demonstrate how quickly the ground can literally begin shaking beneath us and everything around us can change at a scale that we don't understand. Uh, here's one picture from that earthquake. But as I was reading about this earthquake, a 6.9 I learned about a phenomenon, I had never heard of this before, it's well documented among geologists, that when big earthquakes happen, they can emit these flashes of light. And there's actually great debate in the scientific community about what causes these flashes of light. Uh, there's no debate that it happens, but there's still debate about why does it happen. And there's some good theories, but there has yet to be convergence of the theories. I want you to see these flashes of light in this literal earthquake, this is not CGI or Hollywood. This is not from a movie. This is literally someone's phone camera during this earthquake in Mexico on September 8th. Go ahead and take a look. Exactamente el momento en el que el Servicio Sismológico Nacional está dando como la hora de inicio de este sismo que ya decía Santa Paula, preliminar 6.9 eh, con localización a 14 eh, kilómetros al sureste de Acapulco Guerrero, que fue el primer sensor, digamos, que captó este eh, movimiento telúrico ahí en las costas del Océano Pacífico, en las costas del estado de Guerrero. Y esta es eh, pues la imagen del de momento aquí en las antenas de, de Televisa Chapultepec. Eh, un eh, movimiento telúrico que las autoridades dicen eh, de, de, de fuerte a muy fuerte, que fue eh, como se sintió. Jesus says in Mark 13, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. His idea is every city on planet Earth is the God who's not limited by the physical world. All eyes are going to see this at the same time. Can you imagine the splendor? Can you imagine the awe? All the senses of your body. You've got goosebumps on your arm. The, the hairs are standing up. The, there's shivers down the back of your neck as there's this electricity of something bigger Something of a different order is now revealing itself and the whole world trembles as the God who made it and went out of his way to rescue it reveals himself to be not just loving but also all-powerful. Jesus continues, he says, he will send his angels and gather his elect. How do you make sure you're one of his elect? In other words, he's going to scoop up his people. Just like when Noah, when the earth flooded, God saved Noah because he was righteous and his family. God is going to do that for every believer in Jesus. How do you know for sure you're part of this group? You don't have to pay money. You don't have to do good deeds. You have to humble yourself before God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again. I believe that you're God. Be my savior. Be the Lord of my life. Then you're in this group. Okay, make sure you've done that today. He will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and from the ends of heaven. And the disciples were now thinking what some of you are thinking. When is this going to be? You know, is it going to be 2042? Is it going to be? And so Jesus answers that in verse 32. He says, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or even Jesus had humbled himself to come to earth. In his earthly form, he didn't know it, but only God the Father in heaven. 
His point is here, don't get caught up in predictions and hysteria. There are groups of people throughout history who get really caught up in kind of overly focusing on the end times. We need to live with an awareness of them, but we're supposed to live today for Jesus. And so don't get caught up if someone ever says like, oh, it's going to be this exact month or day or year. Don't get caught up in the hysteria. Instead, verse 33, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. There's a country song that goes, live like you were dying. It's like, you know, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I did all these great things that I was too busy to do because I knew I was going to die. So live like you were dying. Well, in a sense, Jesus is saying, live every day like it could be the day that Jesus returns. So one, know that you've placed your faith in him for your salvation and that that is secure based on his work on the cross. But then secondly, as a follower of Jesus... Be living in such a way that when he suddenly returns, you get caught in the act of doing great things for the kingdom of God. Like live that way. That's the point that Jesus is making. That's the next reality of this good news or this gospel. Jesus warns you about the future. Why? So that you'll know how to live today. He tells us these things about the future, not so we can become theological nerds and have a bunch of charts and systems or, you know, dramatic movies and stories. He tells us these things so that we will live with an awareness of it today. And those are the two most important questions for you to answer today. First, have you believed in Jesus? Uh, And if not, you're going to hear from his word today uh, how important of a choice that is for you. Secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, how much are you living for him? I know as I studied this passage, for me, it just it put a new fire in me to really be living today for the King of Kings, for the Lord of Lords. Now, I'm not going to walk you through all six of these prophecies about Jesus' future return, but I know some of you might want to take a, a picture with your phone, or later you can pull this message up online, and you can see all those passages. Of course, our Life Application Study Bible that we give out uh, also has a whole section on the end times in it. But let's jump into one of these, 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to look at this same moment that Jesus described from a few other perspectives in the New Testament. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. So think about it. We're going to hear things we've never heard before. We're going to see things we've never seen before. All five of our senses are just going to be stimulated in a way we've never experienced before. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, every person over the centuries and the millennia who's been one of God's people, someone who's placed their faith in Jesus, they will physically rise from the dead. Their bodies will be reanimated as they're rising through the air. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 that then they're given a glorified body. That is a body that, one, never gets any zits, also never dies, never has cancer. A body like Adam and Eve initially had before death and cancer and sickness and disease. Be raised to life in a new body just as Jesus rose from the dead. After that, we who are still alive. So if we get to be that generation of believers who we haven't passed away, and this happens while we're alive, we'll also be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. 
I just want to encourage you, if, if you're not yet a believer or if you're a little bit of a doubter, which I was for so long, um, that it is recorded that Jesus predicted that about the temple. And it's recorded that 40 years later it happened. And this will just as literally happen. This is not a metaphor. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What, what, how's that encouraging? What's encouraging is that most Christians through history have, have lived in poverty or have been physically persecuted. We are an anomaly, if you will. We're kind of an exception that we have freedom and we have a longer lifespan and we've got prosperity. And so most Christians, as they would go through difficult things, they would encourage each other, hey, this is the worst it's ever going to get for you. And that's part of the encouragement for us is, uh, yes, sometimes we pray for a healing or we pray for the promotion at work or, or for the situation we're in to get better. And we should pray for those. And, and often God answers those prayers. But our biggest encouragement is that as a follower of Jesus, this is the closest to hell you're ever going to get. This is the worst it's ever going to get for you. If you can make it through this life, it's going to get far better for you. I once ran a marathon, and I say once, because I will never do it again. I looked a lot like this guy, and I know some of you love it, and God bless you. You have a gift that I do not have, okay? I'm all for the 5K or the half marathon, but the full one, oh my goodness. I remember when I was at about the 20-mile mark, if someone had come to encourage me and said, hey, John, um... You've got excellent running shoes. Be encouraged. I would have been like, that does not help. Only two things would help at that point. Water and the finish line. And when you walk through this fallen world, sometimes you can get encouraged by a new pair of shoes or something else. And there's nothing evil with that. But when you go through the really hard things of life, the deepest encouragement is knowing this isn't the end. It gets better. Maybe our house was built over a sinkhole, but someone has come to rescue us out of it and has gone to prepare a far better home for us. Peter, who we've learned about in this series, would write to persecuted Christians in the book of 2 Peter 3, and he put it this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, uh, thieves do not send you a nice letter. Hey, I plan to break into your home Thursday night around 2 a.m. Just wanted to give you the heads up. Right? The point is, humanity is going to be shocked. Just, just like that video we saw of that earthquake in Mexico, and people in that city are like, what is going on? It's going to be like that. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So it's almost like that bedspread that we pictured, that navy blue bedspread with all the ornaments on it, that, that God just like wraps it up. And all of a sudden, the physical realm is gone, and it's just our spirits. There's an old quote, and I love this quote. It says, we tend to think that we are physical beings, and that when we encounter God, we're having a spiritual reality. But the true reality is that we are spiritual beings. And our entire time on earth is just a brief physical experience. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter says, if, if you're aware of this, then you ought to live holy and godly lives. You're not living holy and godly to try to earn salvation 
because we know we can't do that. But it's like, because of what Jesus did for me and because he's going to literally return, I want to live for him. I want to be like him. As you look forward to the day of God and even speed, it's coming. This idea that as we tell more and more people about Jesus, he's kind of waiting for this moment where the whole world knows about him. And um, by human measure, that seems to be pretty close. But God's the one who will decide when the day comes. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt with heat. But in keeping with God's promise to his people, we're actually looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So that moment where all the physical goes away and we're just spirits, that's not all of eternity. That's going to be a temporary moment where we will all just see Jesus. But he's making a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, this earth is corrupted by sin. Not only our bodies, but the actual planet itself is broken. It's polluted by Satan. And as beautiful as this earth is, and it is, he's got a more magnificent one. And so for all of eternity as a follower of Jesus, you're not just going to be like a floating spirit that's like bored. Like, what do I do today? I don't even have any senses. I'm just a spirit. No, you're going to have all your senses and you're going to eat from the tree of life and you're going to laugh and you're going to make new memories and I personally believe I'll be driving a Porsche 911 on the streets of gold because God grants the desires of the righteous. <laughs> My point is, it's not going to be boring. It is a new heaven and a new earth, and it's going to be everything you've experienced here and more without the pain, without the suffering. So then, dear friends, verse 14, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, to be blameless and at peace with him. And here's the visual that the New Testament gives us, is that the whole church, all of us, by the way, not just Connection Point, the capital C church, the true body of Christ in central Indiana and in India and all around the world, is like a bride. And that part of our job as pastors and leaders, part of my job, is to prepare the bride for when Christ returns as the bridegroom. I know it's a weird analogy for us dudes. It's a little weird, but I just want you to think about this. God says more or less, if you continue to sin after you've been saved and we all mess up, we're to confess that sin. Uh, and then it's kind of like we clean up. If, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're just living in ongoing unrepentant sin, you're like a bride who's in like dungaree overalls, you know, covered in mud and in pig slop. And then all of a sudden you're walking down the wedding aisle and the groom is there. It's like, that's embarrassing. And so Peter says, make every effort to be found spotless, not earning our salvation, but doing everything we can out of honor for the bridegroom that when he returns, we as individuals and as a church family are found doing his work and seeking first his kingdom. I'm going to skip to the book of Revelation because in this series, we've learned about James and John. And John is the one who Jesus will appear to long after Jesus' resurrection. John's an old, old man on a prison island. And Jesus appears to him and gives him the book of Revelation. In verse 7, it says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who crucified him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. In other words, there's going to be just such a like, oh my goodness, those Christians were right. Those weirdos were right. 
Like all those, I mean, and, and think about it, all the people who've mocked Jesus. And, and in this moment, if you go to Revelation 20, it then describes Jesus starting to judge one by one every single person who ever lived. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. That's become a theme, hasn't it? Do you remember two weeks ago, we were in a story about Peter where he was all up and down emotionally and he goes up a mountain with Jesus and then he has this spiritual moment. It says, and then suddenly they no longer saw anyone else but Jesus. Remember that? That moment is going to happen for every single person who's ever lived in all of history where just the material world is gone and all anyone can see is Jesus. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done. Very significant. The dead were judged according to what they're done. Now, for all of eternity, there's only one of two sides you can be on, with God in heaven because you've believed in Jesus or separated from God. But on the separated from God side, I believe based on many scriptures like this, it's not equal for all the people on the separated from God side. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, terrorists who intentionally kill and destroy people, they're going to be judged specifically according to the word of God by what they have done. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, here's your option and mine. When this all happens, and it will, and you stand before Jesus, who's almighty God, you can either be judged based on what you've done, or you can be judged based on what Jesus has done for you. And when you place your faith in Christ, what happens is that the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of Jesus gets applied to your account. So this is a judgment that for believers, we don't fear because for us, it's a welcome in for all who haven't believed they're going to get justice for what they've done in their life, according to the just judge who doesn't answer to any one of us and he doesn't have to. So what's the summary of this good news I want to put it down to two words. Jesus wins. <laughs> Jesus wins. Can we thank God for that. And we are to fight against injustice in this world. We're to do all that we can to bring the kingdom of heaven here. But when we're doing that, and it just seems like, are we even making a difference? Evil is on the move. There's so much violence and just things that we can't stop. We've got to remind ourselves, Jesus is going to fix all that in the end. And he will be a just judge. And it's this reminder for us that it's out of his kindness and generosity that he invites us into his kingdom. He wasn't obligated to invite me into his kingdom. He didn't invite you or me because he just thought we were great people. He invited us in because he loves you. He made you in his image. And when he saw sin rip you away from him, he said, I'll do whatever it takes to make a way for her, for him to get back into the kingdom of God. And so if we think back of that sinkhole, sometimes life-giving good news begins with bad news. Like this is the end of humanity, what we've studied today. But it doesn't need to be the end for you. It can be for you the moment that you move into eternal life 
with Christ. If we believe Jesus, what are we supposed to do now while we wait for his return? And to answer that, I'm going to take you to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. And it, it says this, the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit that we were singing about earlier today, and the bride, that's us, say together, come, let anyone who hears this say, come, let anyone who is thirsty come to Christ, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. In other words, we see where things are headed, but there's life-giving water. There's an eternal life available, and that's why the gospel of Mark concludes in 1615, with Jesus saying to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the good news, the life message, the gospel. So we started four weeks ago, Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. This is the end of the book. We've studied it all the way through. And what are we to do as followers of Jesus in this world? Tell as many people as possible that God loves you, that he wants you with him for all of eternity. And then Jesus, this is how Mark ends. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Jesus leaves no um, shadow of doubt. about How do you know for sure you're in the kingdom of God? It's right there. Whoever believes and be, is baptized will be saved. So have you believed? Have you been baptized? And then church, as individuals in our community, have we forgotten that we exist on planet earth to prepare the world for Jesus' return. That's why we're here. You can live for eternity now. And God brought us this passage today to inspire us that way. Which world have you been living for? Will you join me in saying, I'm going to go all in for the kingdom of God so that when Jesus returns, we're caught in the act of telling other people about him and doing great things for him. Let me pray that for you. Father, I'm so grateful for a church family, a body of believers, all these beautiful, beautiful people with various gifts and backgrounds and abilities, and how we all work together, Lord, to help families in New Orleans and to bring those three men to salvation last weekend and to show our young people the power of following you as well as the peace. Lord, you've placed us on this earth not to build a kingdom here on top of a sinkhole, but to invest in a kingdom that is eternal. And so, Lord, we just pray today for every single person listening to this. If there's anyone who doesn't know with confidence that they're part of your kingdom, I pray that they would choose and make today the day of their salvation. Lord, for those of us who know you, we just invite your Holy Spirit in this upcoming week to bring back to our minds and our hearts these scriptures that we've read that we would become a people who are blameless and spotless, striving for your kingdom, knowing that every tangible thing in this world is temporary. It is only people who have eternal souls. And you and your word, those are the only three things in our daily life that will last for eternity. So help us to, to go all in on those three things, loving others, loving you, loving your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.